Nigel Mansell was seconds away from winning the Canadian Grand Prix in 1991 when his Williams famously coasted to a halt, handing victory to his old nemesis Nelson Piquet. But what really happened to Mansell and what turmoil was going on behind the scenes at the Benetton team that picked up this fortunate victory? We'll cover all of that and much more on this episode of Bring Back V10s, brought to you by The Race. My name is Glenn Freeman, and joining me to look back at Canada 91, a former F1 driver and now Sky Sports expert Karun Chanduk, and the race's COO and founder Andrew Vandenberg, who really I should introduce as massive Nelson Piquet fan. But first, Karun, welcome back to Memory Lane. By now, you know how this works. So when you think of Canada 91, what's the first thing that springs to mind? And did I, by any chance, steal your thunder in the show's intro? Well, you absolutely did. I mean, <laughs> the, the overriding memory has got to be Murray Walker's commentary as Nigel came around that hairpin on the final lap, hasn't it? I mean, that is that is the overriding memory. There's no, there's nothing, there's nothing else. There's nothing else. I mean, PDB is about to say something about PK jumping in the podium or something, but yeah, it's got to be that. Yeah. So come on, Andy, I guess your overriding memory is how PK's final win of his F1 career was one of his most deserved. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's right up there. You know, <laughs> you think Hungary 86 and then it's just Canada 91. It's, uh, no, I mean, of course, of course, the memory is is just seeing that uh, Williams grind into a halt. And um, I think by this point in his in PK's career, what was he, 38 going on 39? I didn't have particularly high expectations that I was going to be seeing too many more wins. Um especially given the way that that car was performing. And uh, I just remember, I think I might have even laughed out loud, which doesn't happen very often when you're watching a Formula One race, but just to see, you know, the sweetness of him gliding past Mansell's stop car to take that win was was a great little memory at the time. Now, remember, listeners, to get your questions in for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. And if you're enjoying the series, feel free to show your support with a five-star podcast review and you can leave a question there too. We'll do some more shout outs for some of our recent reviews. So thank you to Richard, Sammy P328 and Shark Hello for your support and the questions you've sent in for our finale too. But let's get on with Canada 91 and we'll set the scene with how things were looking coming into the race, which was the fifth round of the championship. Ayrton Senna had won the first four races of the year for McLaren. So he led the standings by 29 points from Alain Prost's Ferrari. Behind that, the main talking point was the form of Williams, which clearly had a quick car, but one that had started the year unreliable. Nigel Mansell and Ricardo Patrese had managed one second place each, so they were 34 points behind Senna already. But by the last race in Monaco, they at least seemed to be getting on top of those problems. Still, being that far behind prompted Mansell to declare the championship is already over to French newspaper L'Equipe. Andy, was this a bit over the top from Mansell with 12 races and therefore 120 points still up for grabs? Yeah, I think it was. I think um, we'd seen the potential of the Williams in a couple of races uh, in Mexico. They were pretty quick, like you say, in, in Monaco, uh, being right up there. And in the commentary of this race, we go back and watch it. Um, James Hunt mentions pretty early on that the McLaren reliability has been a bit suspect as well. So I don't think there was any reason to concede the championship with so many points already there. I mean, obviously they knew of the issues they'd had, but I think the fundamental uh, potential of that car meant that they should have absolutely begun in for the championship. And I think, you know, you see the way that the championship ultimately played out. 
they were only a couple of retirements away from really being in a factor for it. So, yeah, I think it, there's almost certainly a bit of Mansell kidology in that anyway. But uh, if even if they had privately thought that, I think realistically they knew that they had the pace in there to challenge. And, you know, if they just rack the wins up, then a championship challenge falls off the back of it, doesn't it? Well, you also just need to fast forward a little bit, don't you, Andy, to after Hockenheim, because Nigel went on that hat-trick of victories in the middle of the season, at which point he was only eight points behind Senna. And I think we've given away the ending of this podcast where, surprise, surprise, <laughs> he doesn't win the Canadian Grand Prix. But if you, you know... If he if you give him the points for that win, he would have been equal, I think. Um, as it actually, it would have been two ahead, wouldn't he? It was ten for the win at that stage, so he he would have been leading the championship. Um, so yeah, I think there was a a little bit of uh, a theatrics in there, which was no surprise to anyone. Not in ninety one spec months, so I won't hear of it. <laughs> it's all box office, but let's explain what was going wrong for Williams at the start of the year. This was Adrian Newey's first design for the team, the original FW14, and Patrick Head had taken on the challenge of designing Williams' first semi-automatic gearbox. It will come as no surprise to anyone who has read Newey's book or heard us bang on about it in the past, about how great it is, that he explains this brilliantly. Williams noticed they were getting a surprising amount of damage to sixth gear, so in Brazil, the second race of the season, they ran it as a five-speed box. Petrazzi finished second, but Mansell suffered another gearbox failure, and when Williams stripped it down, they found that the sixth gear dog, which takes drive from the shaft to the gear itself, had still been damaged despite not being in use. From that, Patrick worked out that the shafts were moving lengthways, so the dogs could engage even when they weren't supposed to. Then it was an easy fix to make sure the shafts couldn't move like that in the future. Newey said Williams had assumed all along this problem was related to the switch to a semi-automatic gearbox, but in fact it was nothing to do with that at all. Mansell says in his book that the car was slightly late to arrive in pre-season, and that left Williams with little time to iron out the teething problems before the first race. He praised Williams for how quickly it got on top of the dramas, but he did add the problem was that the championship began in March, not June. So, Karun, we touched on how Williams recovered there um, a little bit in your previous answer. And from that point that you mentioned, there were more dramas for Williams that ultimately cost Nigel the championship. So do you think, is there any way that we can say, really, his hopes were lost with the first three races that he retired from? I think I go back to that old adage that every race counts for the same number of points, doesn't it? You know, you had 16 races they, they were all there. Um, the reality is they did have unreliability. Um, you know, obviously the, the first three races, you know, Nigel had the issues. But don't forget, in round three, he actually collided, I think, with Brundle, wasn't it? He had a poor start uh, and then ended up colliding with Martin Brundle at the final chicane at Imola. Um, and, you know, but also we're talking about an era where cars were unreliable. McLaren were actually quite lucky in those first four races. Senna had gearbox issues at all four of those events. He was just lucky it didn't happen in the races apart from Brazil, you know, where he got famously stuck in gear and got that the emotional seeds of him driving around trying to win his home Grand Prix while stuck in stuck in one gear. Um, but, the, you know, they were lucky and eventually their luck ran out when we get to Canada, which we're going to talk about soon. So I think unreliability was a factor across the paddock in that 
time of the sport. Um, but Williams certainly had more issues. You know, later in the obviously, I think Spa, Nigel should have won at Spa and, and the car broke down. So that, that cost him. And, um, you know, so there, there was a, a catalogue of things there for him. I think what those lost points also did was put them in a, you know, take away any of that buffer they had to, or Mansell had to ease off, which is why I think he ultimately made that mistake in Japan that was the, the final coup de grace in, in the, ultimately in the championship. You know, if even two of those races he'd finished and had another 10, 12 points on the board, he would have been in a much different situation. So I think while they weren't, you know, there was, there were still enough points there to, to pull it back. What it did was take away you know, those, uh, that ability he might have had to have just cruise and collected rather than, you know, put it all on the line to, to get that result in Suzuka. Now, around the time of Canada, there were some interesting comments from Renault in the press. Renault had come back to F1 with Williams in 1989, so this was the third season of that partnership. And it emerged that Renault president Raymond Levy had told the Renault sport bosses, if you want to stay, start winning. I won't pay to come second. That prompted Renault to say that while there wasn't a fixed timeline on when it had to win, it was clearly by 1991 or at worst 92. And when Mansell came back to Williams at the end of 1990, he said he realised a lot of work needed doing on the engine and it was clear the drivers had not put enough pressure on Renault. Mansell came in and told Renault and fuel supplier Elf that their stuff wasn't good enough because he'd seen the lengths Ferrari was going to to find extra power. Mansell said he tried to be constructive, but the bare facts were that their work wasn't up to scratch. He says Renault even complained to Patrick Head that he was putting unreasonable pressure on them, and Patrick eventually had to tell him to back off for a bit, but after a few months, they started doing something about it. So, Karun, given the pressure Renault was under at corporate level to win a championship, did it need a driver and a personality like Mansell to come in and rattle a few cages? I don't know if they needed that, um, and if anything, it was probably unhelpful, <laughs> which which is which is why you know they they probably had a quiet word with Williams about it. Uh, the The reality is they needed a driver with the talent and ability of Nigel Mansell to deliver a championship. You know that this, this is the thing for all for all the the theatrics and the drama that went with Nigel outside of the car. In the car, he was fundamentally brilliant. You know, I, I think when you look back at his career from when he joined Williams in, in 85 until, you know, frankly, even 94, those, the, the old cameos, but let's say until 92, uh, he, he was up there. He, he was right up there with, with Pross and the Senna's, you know, some of his great qualifying laps, even in the Ferrari you saw in 1990. Um, you know, so I think Renault needed... Um, a lead driver like Nigel who could who could put together a championship campaign, which obviously eventually did in, in 92. But I don't think they needed all the drama that came outside of the car. Yeah, I think um, the fact that he'd come from Ferrari and had an understanding of what they were doing there, I don't remember from the time, and that's why these things are so interesting, there being that sort of complaint about the Renault engine being underpowered. I always thought that it had generally been well-received as being probably the most drivable one on the grid. But him knowing what Ferrari were doing with those exotic fuels and how, you know, where those lines of development were going was probably uh, a help if you ultimately balance it up against the uh, the hindrance of being told it in quite so blunt of terms. Um, so from that perspective, they probably did need someone who had, you know, outsider experience. 
Next, we'll revisit a subject we touched on in our very first episode of Bring Back V10s, and that's the Ferrari management upheaval of 1991 that took place before this race. Karun was with us for the two-parter we did on the breakdown of Alain Prost's relationship with Ferrari, but back then we covered uh, Cesare Fiorio getting booted out as team boss, and we focused on Prost's side of the story and his denial that he had anything to do with it. We didn't get a chance to look at it then from Fiorio's perspective, so that's what we'll do here. Ferrari announced Fiorio was being replaced by a three-man team of Piero Ferrari, son of Enzo, Claudio Lombardi, who came over from Lancia, and Marco Piccinini, who was a former Ferrari sporting director. A week later, a fourth name was added to the new regime at the top, with Francesco Longanese joining from FISA to take the role of team manager. In case you're in any doubt about the dysfunction here, and you're probably not, Later in the summer, Lombardi would say that he was effectively doing Fiorio's old job, with Piero Ferrari like the owner and Piccinini a consultant. No mention once again for Longanese, who Ferrari seemed to keep forgetting. Fiorio was quoted in Autosport magazine straight after his sacking, saying it's not easy to make sense of this. He also said that thanks to his work, Ferrari was ready to win, and for that reason, anger and bitterness is gnawing away inside me. But his main point was this. He said, four defeats are not much after two years of continuous progress, which almost took us to the world championship. Don't the results of the previous years count for anything? Andy, you weren't with us for the Prost Ferrari episode, so we'll come to you first on this. I don't think we'll dwell too much on his claim that Ferrari was ready to win again, given that that didn't happen for another three years. But did Fiorio have a point that his track record in 89 and 90 meant he deserved a bit more time to fix the problems at the start of 91. I, I think it probably did. I mean, I'd obviously been aware of Fiorio for a long period of time when, with all the success he'd been having in, in rallying. It was clear that he was a, a interesting, maybe slightly combustible uh, character, but there could be no denying uh, the results that he'd achieved right from the 70s with, with the Fulvia and then the, uh, you know, a whole series of Breathful cars, Stratos's and, and whatnot. So um, he knew what he was, or at least he, he, he'd proven before that he knew what it took to, to win at the highest level. So I think, yeah, he probably did have a bit of a point there. But equally, it's clear, and he obviously went into it in detail on those first two episodes, that things were at best dysfunctional behind the scenes there. So it, while he might well have had a, a point that he could have should have been given a bit longer, you know, if something's not working, how much longer do you bother persevering with it if it's only going to get worse? It's funny, isn't it, how, you know, the the context becomes so important when you think about uh, success and failure across a season. In in 91, you know, I, I don't know, I, again, and, and this you're right, Andy, it's, this is why it's fun doing these podcasts because in my head, in 91, Ferrari were absolutely rubbish, Um but actually, when, when I started doing a bit of reading for this podcast and started looking back at the season, it wasn't as bad as they were last season, for example, in F1. <laughs> you know, Prost still got five podiums in 91. I think Alesi got three. So they had podiums in 50% of the races, eight out of 16. Um, you know, they, they were leading. Alesi could have and should have won at Spa. Prost was competitive up there. Um, you know, it, it's funny, but... You, you just look at it, I think it's because we got used to the previous season in, in 90, obviously, Prost took the battle, you know, all the way down to the wire with um, with Senna for the title. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it's 
it's all relative, isn't it? Um, and and suddenly for them not being a championship contender, I think the fact that Williams had, you know, quickly surpassed them um, was enough to create uproar and uh, you know plenty of Italian arm waving in Maranello. And if you look what happened in '92 and '93, it wasn't like they suddenly took a big step forward, was it? I mean, they went completely backwards. I think ni- ni- you'd have to say '93 was probably their lowest point, wasn't it? You know, in terms of competitiveness across probably across the last 40 years um you know that's got to be marked as one of their worst seasons together with obviously 1980 i think um and last year yeah they didn't exactly uh clear out the dysfunction when they got rid of the guy in charge at this point did they but there were changes at lotus for this race as well although we're talking on the driving side now rather than the management julian bailey was out after failing to qualify for three of the opening four races and Lotus took a gamble on bringing Johnny Herbert back. And I say gamble because Herbert couldn't bring any money for the drive. Herbert says in his book that his late 1990 call-up with Lotus to stand in for Martin Donnelly made me realise how much I was missing Formula One and he'd been waiting for a chance to get back in. He was called up by Peter Collins, who was in charge at Lotus by now, and had given Herbert his chance at Benetton in 1989, which we talked about a few weeks ago in our France 89 episode. Ahead of that 1989 season, Collins had fought back against the Flavio Briatore-led side of Benetton over keeping Herbert in the drive while he was recovering from the injuries from his F3000 crash at Brands Hatch. And now here Collins was running a cash-strapped team and giving Herbert a chance rather than a driver who could bring some funding. So, Karun, what do you make of the loyalty and faith that Collins showed in Herbert around this time? And do you think Johnny would have ever got a fair crack at F1 again without Collins being the man to give him that shot? I don't think so. I mean, I think Johnny's, you know, said on several occasions, and he, you know, he's, he owes his career in many ways to Peter Collins, right? From that first opportunity with Benetton, you know, there's, I think there's no doubt about the fact that Flavio wanted to put him in the car. <laughs> um, you know, it, it definitely needed Peter Collins to cajole and, and convince Flavio to put him in there. Um and, and, you know, obviously then Peter moved to, to Lotus and, and did it again. So, no, I think in, in on both those occasions, really, Johnny owes Peter Collins big time for, for making the phone call. The significant thing here is that Herbert believes by the middle of 91, he was now approaching what he called full-ish recovery from his injuries. And he said he was keen to pick up where we'd left off at Benetton without any Flavios around messing up the game. Herbert lost his drive in 1989 after failing to qualify the Benetton in Canada, and here he was at the same track two years later, failing to qualify again. The circumstances were a little different this time. Uh, Johnny's pace had been fine in practice, but his car broke down in qualifying and he had to use the spare instead, which Herbert says was an absolute pig. Lotus learned from that weekend that they needed to work harder to ensure the spare car had parity with the race cars. Although clearly it wasn't Johnny's fault, this did hit him hard. In his book, he wrote, I was devastated. This was supposed to be the first real race of the second half of my F1 career, so failing to qualify was the worst possible outcome. Before I caught the plane home, I had a very tearful conversation with Peter Collins. Once again, I thought I'd let him down. It took all of his legendary motivational skills to bring me round and reassure me that all the hard work hadn't been in vain. So Andy, do you think Herbert could be forgiven at this point for thinking that F1 might never work out for him? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very rare that people get given a second chance anyway. 
and uh, let alone you know when you've disappeared off to the other side of the world and, and racing in Japan and he was he was a fair old way off the radar I would have thought um, for, for most people and like I say to to have turned up and to have not qualified again I think he would be more than justified in thinking that that was it you know we'd blown it but as Karim said earlier I mean Collins had shown faith in him and would show some more faith in him and then obviously he went on to match Mika Hakkinen and you know, he, he all, even though he wasn't uh, the star, superstar he became, he had a big reputation for what he'd done in his junior career. And I think that, that really helped. And those of us that had seen what Herbert had done, especially in that 3000 championship before his shunt, were delighted that he could actually show that pace. Although I don't think he ever was quite the driver that he could have been. You know, he went on to have a long and generally quite successful career. And, you know, if he hadn't been invited back after that Canadian race, you could have seen why that was the case. Another big piece of news that was announced around uh, was announced in Canada was Ford's plan to supply Benetton with a V12 engine from 1992. This was a big deal being announced by the Ford Motor Company itself rather than by the team or any racing department. Alan Gilmore, executive vice president at Ford, said the design of the V12 is complete and prototypes are now being manufactured. It will be the first 12-cylinder engine in Ford's racing history. Dyno running is to start in November, and testing of the engine in a car will begin before the end of the year. Weeks later, Ford released an image of the V12, but as we know now, it, the engine never raced. It turns out the V12 was an idea pushed by John Barnard as soon as he came over from Ferrari at the end of 1989, and it took a year to get Ford to approve it, which they did in December 1990. However, Ford asked Benetton to share a portion of the funding burden for the engine's development, and a reluctant Flavio Briatore had asked for a full breakdown of what it could cost. Not long after Barnard left Benetton, which we'll come back to later in this episode, new recruit Tom Walkinshaw was quick to offer his opinion that Benetton should stick with its V8 rather than risk an untried engine in a bid to get on terms with Honda, Renault and Ferrari. So, Karun... As I said, we'll come back to the John Barnard element of this later on, but looking at the decision Walkinshaw made when he came in to stick with the V8, was that the correct decision, given that this was the wish of an outgoing technical director and it was potentially going to cost Benetton money to, to fund the project? Yeah, it's hard to tell without knowing all of the pieces of the puzzle. You know, Did they have a revolutionary design or plan for the V12 that was going to catapult them forward? You know, We've seen... Uh, when Honda went from the V10 to the V12, actually, it didn't necessarily turn out to be the best decision, which, again, I think we'll, we'll revisit later. But, um, it, you know, when you now look at it as what happened in the subsequent years with Benetton, with the V8, you know, in 92, 93, they had a very competitive car with the, with the Ford V8 engine. I think, you know, they were arguably the second quickest car on for both of those seasons. Um so it's really hard to tell and judge, um, you know, without having the whole picture into what that V12 could have been, really. It's what I love most about this era. I know the show's called Bring Back V10s, but when the turbo era ended, we had competitive V8s, V10s, V12s, you know, people experimented with all sorts of things, and it, it kept that news agenda rolling. And the same with the cars. I mean, you, you look at the, the McLaren, the Williams, the Benetton, and the Ferrari, and they're all taken very different 
conceptual roots and you know people have said oh, if you paint all the cars white you couldn't tell the difference i mean i always think that's a bit nonsense but with these ones you could instantly identify them yeah if you painted the ferrari and a williams the same color you could tell which one was the ferrari or the williams um so yeah the v12 may have been a nice idea i think as karun said from what we saw with um honda's dabbling with the v12 it wasn't the right way to go and ultimately of course did converge on v10s but it was just a great bit of that news agenda. Oh, they're going to do a V12 for the first time, you know, as a racing engine. Brilliant. You you have to wonder if Benetton's reluctance was influenced by what Honda was doing at the time, because for 91, Honda had switched from a V10 to a V12 in a bid to find more power. Senna hadn't been impressed at the start of the year, but Honda had focused on reliability over performance at the start of the season which paid off with those four wins while the Williamses kept breaking down. But McLaren believed that this Montreal weekend was the moment it became clear the V12 didn't offer the expected performance gain and that any extra power they had only offset the extra weight of the bigger engine. Montreal was a power circuit as it still is today and Senna was nearly half a second down on Patrese's Williams uh, as Williams locked out the front row. So, Karun, bearing in mind that Honda pulled out of F1 at the end of 92, can we say that ultimately the, the switch to a V12 for 91 was a mistake? I, I think you could probably make a strong argument for it. You know, if they'd invested that resource, because, you know, redesigning a full engine to go um, into the back of the car must have taken a considerable amount of time, effort and money to do that for the 91 season. And in the end, both Senna and Berger, um, you know, when you look back at their comments straight away from the first test, they went, uh, it's not really that much better, is it? It's, it's basically the same. Um, and in fact, they didn't think the drivability was, was better, they thought it was worse. So um, then when you look at, could they have spent their money making the V10 even better? There's an argument uh, to say possibly, but... It's whether they believe philosophically they'd reached the top end of the curve on the V10 development. You know, that V10 engine carried on racing with Tyrrell, didn't it, in 91? I think Modena had some decent results with it. But, um, you know, had they had they started to believe that, listen, we've got absolutely the max we can, can out of this V10, and therefore we need to start thinking of something else. And that's the only reason why perhaps they thought, okay, we need to go in this uh, different direction. Maybe if they'd stuck around and they'd got to the top of the development curve of the V12, they'd have brought in a V14 after that then. Um, but let's talk about Patrese v Mansell. This was Williams's first pole of 1991, and in the qualifying battle between the drivers, it made it 5-0 to Patrese. In Canada, this was particularly impressive given Patrese was still feeling the effects of a big crash in practice when he'd gone off on oil dropped by Senna's engine. He said he was feeling stiff and had to use a lot of strength to hold himself steady in the car because if he relaxed, the bumps of the track made his neck hurt. Mansell said this early season qualifying record was used by those questioning his motivation after his almost retirement in 1990. He accepts Ricardo was more on the pace than me, but he said that was just down to Patrese's familiarity with the team, having been there for a few years by this point and because Mansell had had more technical problems in qualifying. Andy, is that a fair assessment of how Mansell and Patrese stacked up in early 91? I think um, I think 91 is uh, Patrese's best year in Formula 1. 
I think um, I think he drove brilliantly uh, across a large part of that year. Later in the year, his uh, his pole position lap and win in Estoril, I think, is the the best thing he did in Formula One by a mile. And I think he was really on it. I think he 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 bonded with that car and the way it was set up in a way he clearly didn't do in the fully active car of, of ninety two when he was absolutely destroyed. But I think you know he drove better than Mansell in that car, and and that and that's why you know. I think over the course of the season, he, he he edged it in qualifying as well, didn't he? Obviously, had a five nil head start by the time we've got here. Um, so yeah, I think that is a that is a very fair assumption. And I mean, he knew the team, and the team really liked him. I think that was the main thing. He got the team really believed in in him as a nice guy, and uh, and helped develop that car a lot. I think I've seen comments that uh, it was always easy for Ricardo to negotiate with uh, Frank Williams because Frank was quite fond of him and. Ricardo maybe used that to his financial advantage from time to time. We'll get on to the race and Mansell took the lead at the start. And I thought it was worth noting that both Autosport and Motorsport magazines reports said that Mansell was particularly aggressive with Patrese into the first corner. Patrese said after the race that he felt Mansell closed the door a little bit, uh, but he then paused and added, so we are teammates and he went in front. Guys, uh, was this really that aggressive from Mansell? Uh, not by modern standards, I don't think. I mean, I, I watched the replay at the start, and actually, I think what happened was Patrese started to creep and then checked himself, um, which therefore allowed Nigel to have a bit more momentum when they got down to the first braking zone. Um, so, no, you know, it is. I don't think so. It's a bit like we were discussing the other day, weren't we, with the 1995 stuff, the Hill Schumacher Spa. Even now, when Damon watches it back, he kind of goes, oh, actually, it wasn't that bad then. I don't know why I was waving my arm at him. Uh, so I think there's there's an element of that. I'm going to go and get my little step ladder so I can climb onto my high horse here. But I um, this there's nothing wrong with what happens in that first corner. Uh, let's just get that there. But this is the era where I was fully immersed in motorsport, and that was considered aggressive, right? We didn't have the weaving around in the straight line. We didn't have all the super aggressive defence into breaking zones that is common now, and I think he's ultimately anti-racing. So um, this goes to show how times change because you just didn't see it then. If you saw a car coming out the corner and they got into the slipstream, they would go alongside and they would pass. You, w- you wouldn't see them moving them towards the wall or whatever, which is why when Senna did it to Prost, um, it was it was considered to be such a, a terrible manoeuvre. I mean, now you barely see, you know, someone like Ocon, you know, he barely drives in a straight line when someone's behind him. So it's 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 horses for courses. But I, from a personal old bugger point of view, I much preferred it when that was considered to be aggressive, even though there's absolutely nothing in it. Yeah, I mean, people single out the, the Senna move at Estoril 88, don't they? But actually, if, if you watch a lot of his career, even Senna didn't that often swerve towards people. His his thing was contesting breaking zones and apexes. Like if, you, if you got down the inside of Senna, he would still try to sort of turn in when you got there, but he hasn't really tried to run you off the road much uh, on the run to the corner. That came really uh, with the advent of the sport's next great driver, shall we say. But when the race got going, Mansell disappeared into the distance. But what unfolded behind him was an afternoon of attrition, mainly in the first half of the race. Gerhard Berger's McLaren was in trouble from the opening lap, and he finally dropped out after four laps. Senna's car lasted only 25 laps. Prost dropped back as he tried to nurse a gearbox problem, but he had to stop after 27 laps, and Jean Alesi's Ferrari engine failed after 34 laps. 
So by half distance, we had the two Williamses out front, 15 seconds apart, with Piquet's Benetton, the only other recognised frontrunner, still in the race, and he was 46 seconds off the lead. Now, we talked about this briefly earlier, but in today's era of bulletproof F1 cars, we often hear people longing for the days when unreliability created another variable that could liven up a race. Karun, was it more interesting when any car could be struck down at any moment, or was the first half of this race actually an example of when that went too far? It's a balancing act. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, Canada is probably quite a bad example, isn't it? It's a track that was always hard for the cars, the brakes, the gearboxes, the engines. Um, and it still continues to be the case even now. You know, we see it as a race of attrition. Um, you know, it's all relative, of course, but we, even now it's it's quite a tough track. So um, I, I quite like the fact in one sense that there was an element of jeopardy where you, you know, sort of two-thirds the way through, even if the race had strung out a bit and the order had settled down, you still had that element of, is the car going to get to the finish? And is the car, is the driver going to have to be nursing a problem? And, you know, you, we, we often saw that, didn't we? You know, towards the latter stage of the race, where they, they'd have issues and you'd find people catching each other and you had this sort of weird cat and mouse happening. Um, on the flip side, you don't like to see championships decided by reliability. You know, how, how often do we talk about 2016 and Lewis's engine failure in Malaysia? Being, you know, being the defining moment of that championship battle in so many ways. So, so yeah, I think I think there's a balancing act. You know, I think, um, and the '90s were good for that. I, I I personally liked it that way. You know, that era of the '90s where there was that element of jeopardy. Oh, I loved it. You know, oh, Leto's running fourth. You know, who's in the points now? Because there were so few points on offer, only the top six. Imagine if they had. Uh, 2010s like reliability now no one other than the top three teams would ever will hardly ever score a point you know and uh, we'll get on to Jordan getting a couple of cards and the points but just seeing them up there um, was fantastic and one of the you know nonsense uh, things you might hear now is oh I watch the start and I go and mow the lawn and I come in at the end you need a pretty big garden but uh, you couldn't do that in a, in a 90s race you come out like, <laughs> where's everybody gone um, so uh, I and as Karun rightly says, Canada was always a car breaker. So you, you couldn't take anything for granted there if uh, when you were watching the race or uh, imagine as a team. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, as for uh, not being able to take anything for granted, this race is a case in point. So we know where we're heading from here. As Mansell continued serenely on his way out front, PK moved up to second when Patrese picked up a puncture and had to limp back to the pits, rejoining a lap down in sixth. He climbed back up to third and unlapped himself from Mansell at one point, but then dropped back again with gearbox problems and lost a place to Stefano Modena's Tyrrell that we mentioned earlier. So now Patrese was on course for fourth place. Mansell started the final lap 57 seconds clear of Piquet, who had backed off, and Mansell was waving to the crowd assembled at the first corner. He cruised around the rest of the lap, then famously came to a halt at the hairpin at the far end of the circuit, and as Karun mentioned at the start of the episode, who can forget 
Murray Walker's iconic piece of commentary. You can hear the crowd whooping in the background. Mansell is almost home now, past the Concord Bridge, then the Metro Bridge, into the hairpin, and then he's just got the straight alongside the Olympic low rowing strip with the lake on his right to go through and complete lap 69 to victory in Canada. And he's going to beat Nelson Piquet by some 50 seconds. He's... He's taking the hairpin very... He's stopping! Nigel Mansell, just a few hundred yards from the flag on the last lap. He's stopping, he's banging his steering wheel in frustration. Something has happened. It looks as though he's out of the race. It looks like he might be out of fuel. At the time, this is what Mansell said. Uh, his quote was, It's almost unbelievable. I went into the hairpin, changed down from fifth to fourth, like I had done the previous 68 laps, and then it went into neutral and the engine cut almost simultaneously like there was an electrical failure. It just stopped. It was as simple as that. When you are that far in front and have driven a fantastic race, like I think I did, there really is nothing to say. When Nigel released his book a few years later, he called it one of the worst mechanical failures I've ever suffered. And he added, I couldn't find a gear to save my life. I had a box full of neutrals. The revs dropped and the engine cut out. That was it. Adrian Newey offered his theory on this as well. Newey says that Mansell was aware he'd made a big mistake because he'd forgotten to change down and the low RPM triggered what Newey called a quirk of the engine control, which stalled the engine. Newey added that the trouble was neither Nigel nor Ricardo had ever driven that way ever before, so it had gone undiscovered. Before we go any further with this, let's hear another viewpoint from none other than Williams' technical legend, Patrick Head. I, I think it's always a bad idea to be sort of waving to the crowd and uh, as he was, with one hand on the steering wheel. And, um, you know, you've got to cross the line first, first and that's what he didn't do. Um, I think the electrical load on the engine... Uh, well, the electrical load on the car was quite high and by waving to the crowd, in fact, he could have changed down. I think he had his right hand on the steering wheel and was waving to the crowd with his left hand. And in fact, um, he could have changed down with his right hand because it was a sort of rocker paddle on the back of the wheel. Uh, and if he pushed it, forward with his right hand as opposed to pulling it back it would have changed down but um, maybe he didn't realize that but uh, uh, personally uh, I mean you know one, one just gets on in this world we, we we I think we won nearly 30 races with Nigel so I'm not a I'm not a critic of Nigel at all but I think he did give that race away um, and uh, he let the engine revs drop down to you know, this was an engine at that time that was revving to probably fourteen or 15,000 and he let the revs drop down to nearly 2,000 RPM and it was unable to develop enough electrical and or hydraulic um, pressure or electrical uh, and the, the batteries on the cars were tiny in those days. They were a minimal accumulator. So whatever, either the electrical voltage or the hydraulic pressure dropped to a level where when he pulled for a down change, the engine went into neutral and stopped. 
So uh, it was a, it was a, a don't do it. I, I think I probably have less sympathy for Nigel than Adrian had, and and Nigel rather gave that race away. But never mind, you know, one of one of many. So we'll come on to the conspiracy theories in a moment. But hearing what really happened from those involved at Williams at the time, Andy, I'm going to ask you first. What do you make of it? Any sympathy for Nigel? Uh, the smallest possible amount. Um, <laughs> I think uh, I'm much more inclined to believe the Newey side of the story than the Mansell being the worst technical failure he'd ever had. I mean, it might be the most embarrassing mistake he ever made. Um, and I think you go back and you watch you watch the race and there's a, a bit in it where um, Tracy's catching up after that pit stop and he's coming back through and he passes Mansell. And at this point, Tracy doesn't have his gearbox problem and he's setting fastest laps and Mansell goes with him and starts racing him and ultimately passes him and sets his own fastest lap. And Hunt has a bit of a pop at him in the commentary. And, you know, obviously he came from that era when cars did break and you, you drove... Uh, you know, to conserve what you had. And Mansell just needed to get that car over the line, right? No showboating, no waving, no setting fastest laps or whatever. Get, especially when you've had all those reliability issues, you just focus on that. Do all the, the grand tour once you've won the race. So no, no, no sympathy, really. Although I felt sorry for the team because obviously, and I'd forgotten, of course, that this would have been Newey's first win because you're just so used to him having won, you know, a million races or whatever, that, yeah, of course, you know, he'd had been close with a few Leighton House and, or March things and it had fallen apart. It must have been quite gutting for him, but no, not sympathy for Mansell. What's funny is when you go back and watch the, the highlights of the race, knowing, you know, how it ended, you could see Nigel waving to the crowd at turn two, or even, even at the start of the last lap. But the difference is over there, and I, and I made sure I sort of re-watched it prior to this podcast but the difference is he's waving as he accelerates out of the corner and what we now know of course is the reason the car cut out was he let the revs drop too low um as, as patrick's explained so um that was the difference you know when he chose to wave and yeah it's just hard to feel sympathy for someone who's you know been showboating just a little bit too early I mean, that's the whole point of the slowing down lap, isn't it? That's when you wave to everybody. But I did say we'd mention the conspiracy theories because the real explanations that we've gone through there didn't come out for a few years until a few years after the race. So despite various people involved since explaining what happened, even today you will find people who believe that in his haste to celebrate too early, Mansell somehow just switched the engine off. Mansell addressed this in his book, which I think came out in '95. Uh, he said, I read some truly idiotic suggestions in the press that I'd switched the ignition off while waving to the crowd. It was a pathetic notion and it really hurt. Let's face it, you don't push as hard as you can for 68 laps and then switch your own engine off. It was bad enough losing the race through mechanical failure, but to have insult added to injury in that way was too painful to describe. He also said this was one of the best examples I can point to of how I am treated by those members of the press who most resent my success. So, Karun, when you were a youngster following F1, reading magazines, watching it on TV, did you, at that time, ever believe that the conspiracy theories might be true? No, no, I, I don't think so. You know, But I think what 
we all did wonder was whether there was an, a gearbox issue because they'd had those earlier in the season. I think that that's actually what most people were wondering at the time. Don't forget, in 1991, I was still in India and we didn't have F1 races on TV. So I got Autosport magazine about six weeks late. And I'm fairly sure that's what was speculated in there <laughs> at the time. <laughs> yeah, obviously I was a, a, an avid reader slash subscriber to Autosport. Um, in those days, I would have I would have been walking walking to college on a Thursday morning with my head down, reading Pit and Paddock on my way to on my way to lectures or whatever. Um, I, I don't think Roebuck ever had uh, much love loss for uh, for Nigel, so still doesn't. No, so I can't I can't imagine him, him being uh, especially sympathetic. But anyway, we have to talk about PK because uh, he won the race, and I can see Andy cheering now. Obviously, he's Andy's favourite driver. Nelson said afterwards that he was concentrating on bringing his car home in second. Andy's waving a sticker at me now, I think. Is that what that is? It's a PK crash helmet. No, it's a, it's a sew-on patch from... Uh... <laughs> I'd like to think that you didn't get that ready for this episode. It's just on your desk at all times. That is that absolutely is on my desk at all times. I'm also wearing a PK Junior t-shirt. It was the only thing I had that was... Um, wow, they can't have sold many of those. Enough. Yeah. Oh no, they gave them away. Um, formerly, right? No, no, this is not a commercial. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, Nelson said he was bringing the car home in second, and then on the final lap, he got the radio call to say Mansell was slowing down, and then he started to push again. And Nelson said at the time, when I saw him, I couldn't believe it. It was very good, very lucky. He was then asked in the press conference if he had any sympathy for Mansell, and Nelson laughed, saying, "I don't feel sorry for nobody." This sort of thing has happened to me. It's motor racing. You win if you finish at the checkered flag first, which is uh, butchering a Ron Dennis quote, I think. But Andy, you've got to take this question. You know as well as anyone how fierce the PK Mansell rivalry was when they were teammates at Williams in the 1980s. Do you think it would have been even sweeter for Nelson that it was Nigel's car stuck at the side of the road? I think the only way it would have been more sweet would if it had been Senna's. Um... But uh, yeah, so I, I can't imagine that having been lost on him. Um, but you have to remember, uh, you know, as a PK fan, uh, you would have seen this happen a lot. You know, through 82, when they were experimenting with uh, refueling strategies, he would often lead races and the BMW would break before they had a chance to, to come in. Or in 84, where he was the only guy that could uh, race the McLarens, but the car, I mean, I think apart from his two wins, he barely finished the race. So you know, the number of lost races in PK's uh, back catalogue is many, um, which I think is why he's quite phlegmatic uh, in his answer there. But there's no way that he wouldn't have enjoyed the fact that it was Mansell that he took the win from. Absolutely not. Now, this was also Pirelli's last win until it came back to F1 in 2011. And it was a 1-2 as modern as Tyrrell took advantage of Patrese's problems to come home second. But slightly further back in the order, as we mentioned briefly earlier, there was another huge story. The first points in F1 for Jordan, which claimed fourth and fifth with Andrea de Cesaris and Bertrand Gascho. But it wasn't a straightforward race for the green cars. They both started out on what turned out to be tyres that were too soft. So they made early stops to switch from D compound to C compound Goodyears. They both had gearbox dramas as well, with de Cesaris losing fifth gear and Gasho having problems changing gear, so they were nursing the cars home as others dropped out around them. 
This, of course, meant it was the first points finish for the Jordan 191 designed by our very own Gary Anderson. So let's hear Gary's memories of being on the pit wall next to Eddie Jordan that day as they counted down the laps. It was a very emotional day. Um, fourth and fifth, the end of a, a race was was pretty impressive. I mean, it was the days of, of reliability. Um, when you look at it, it was only 10 cars finished, lots of gearbox problems, lots of um, engine problems, um, all sorts of problems, basically. But we'd suffered that in the, in the races earlier in the season. We had a car that we thought was quick enough to get some points. Um, but Monaco, we had a broken throttle cable. Um, in Imola, we had a, a, a broken gear change linkage on Andrea's car. So, you know, we were in the in the DNFs, whereas this uh, in Canada '91, we were in the in the in the pound seats and scored some good points. It was um, wasn't an, an easy race because we definitely had some tire blistering problems, as a few people did. Um, it was one of those sort of situations where, to be honest, we we actually started. Um, with the softer tyres, and you know it did it did cause us some grief. But at the end of the day, you know you have to make those decisions. Everybody was suffering the same thing. Um, we had some minor gearbox problems on the way to the checkered flag, but again, um, everybody else suffered bigger gearbox problems. Or we got there at the end of the day, and we we got the points. So the last few laps were a bit tense here and there, but for both Eddie and I, it was. Uh, it was just reward, I think, for, for the effort that was put in. Um, the car was always pretty good in, in fast, sweeping corners, and Canada doesn't have too many of those. Um, it was never that good in slow corners because it had a sort of inherent mechanical understeer. Um, so we weren't too sort of uh, excited about going to Canada. But at the end of the day, fourth and fifth was a, was a great result. Eddie Jordan was at his bonkers best after this result. He said, I can't talk now. How can I talk? My mind is all over the place. He then spoke extensively about the race and what it meant to the people at Jordan. In his book, Eddie added, we had five points after just five races. This gave the team massive encouragement. The sense of relief was enormous, particularly because we were close to being free of the burden of pre-qualifying. Now, I'm not really allowed to talk about the Jordan 191 ever since I told Gary it was only my third favourite F1 car of all time, and he took that quite badly. So we'll leave the appreciation of the car to Karun and Andy. Now, Karun, Eddie said the team knew a result like this was possible with this car from the start of the season, but how significant was it for a brand new team to get a landmark result like this and for it to come early enough in the season to get them out of pre-qualifying for the second half of the year? I think it was a great first season for them, especially when you look back at context over the last 30 odd years. You know, you had Jordan, Sauber, Stewart and Haas, probably, um, you know, four teams who've, who've managed to get off the ground and, and get going in F1. Um, you know, and, and Jordan didn't have superstar drivers until Michael did their one off at Spa, arguably. You know, when you think about the fact Schumacher came in as a complete rookie. And how qualified De Cesare is straight away. That kind of tells you how much more potential there was in that car if they had someone like an Alesi, for example, in it, even at that stage. So, um, no, I think it was a, it was a very, very good car. Um, and unlike you, I have a model of it on my coffee table, which Gary's very happy about. There are no 191 models behind me on my shelf here, but there is a Brabham BT52, which is my favourite car. So if Gary isn't going to speak to me about it, I'll just have to uh, deal with that. But um, 
I love that whole Jordan story, you know, them graduating up through the ranks. Uh, um, the car obviously looked great. And, of course, anyone who's a true F1 fan loved pre-qualifying, you know, getting up early on a Friday morning. Uh, was it 8 or 8.30? Ridiculous. Trying to get a glimpse of, oh, it's an Ocella. I mean, that's, that's one for Straw there or, you know, a Eurobrun or a Cologne or whatever. You know, they might do two laps before they broke down. But it was such jeopardy because there was small, te- I think the session was half an hour, small technical problem and, and you were out. And also there was some half decent cars in there. So if you didn't put a lap together, and you, that was it. Your weekend was over and off you go. So it was a it was a landmark moment for Jordan to to get out of that. And that meant that they could then focus much more on actually preparing for the weekend properly and maximising the potential of that car. And I can't remember how many points they ultimately got in the end of the season, but as Karun rightly says, it's, it remains one of the defining debut seasons for an F1 team. I mean, they finished fifth in the championship at the end of the year, wasn't it? Which was a great first season. Um, but we have to keep in mind, they were quite lucky in that race because Gasho had a spin, didn't he, at the last chicane. Um, and we've seen over the years, how many people have ended up in the wall, um, you know, and and that chicane was tricky even even on that day. I think Hakkinen had a spin, um, Moreno, I seem to recall, had a had something happen to him. So, yeah, um, they, Jordan were lucky that Gasho got away with it. And also, it was quite nice watching the race without people relentlessly referring to it as the race of champions, uh, the wall of champions. Uh, and it just be in the final corner. <laughs> well, I think that was the first year that it had been tightened up as well. And yeah, we're a few a few years away from that race uh, where all the world champions felt need to spin and crash into the wall. But we'll finish this episode by going back to Benetton because although they won this race, big change was coming. Over the Canadian Grand Prix weekend, there were rumours of a management split inside the team involving technical boss John Barnard. And if you thought Eddie Jordan saying, I can't talk, and then talking extensively was good, check out this one from Flavio Briatore. In Canada, Flavio said, I don't want to talk about it because I have nothing to say. He then went on to say, I think next week something will happen, but I don't know exactly what is going on. When you work together, if everyone works very hard, there are some problems. I don't think the problem is so bad. I have a good personal relationship with John. Maybe we have some different ideas about the team. So that was Flavio saying, I don't want to talk about it, followed by an explanation that, yes, there were problems at Benetton. Flavio was still only commercial director at Benetton, but his influence was growing. And shortly after this, the team announced he was moving up to become managing director in full charge of the team. Three days after that win in Canada, Barnard had packed up his things and was out, with Benetton's statement saying this was due to a basic contrast of ideas in the running of the company on a day-to-day basis. Now, Karun, I know you're a big admirer of John Barnard, uh, as I think a lot of us are who followed many of the great designs that he came up with in F1 and some of the innovations he brought to the sport. Briatore was the man who hired John in 1989. But ultimately, do you think Barnard's somewhat forthright character in this era was always unlikely to be a good fit at Benetton? It's probably unlikely to be a good fit with Briatore, to be honest. Um, You know, because... At the end of the day, he, you know, Flavio ended up working with Tom Walkinshaw, who wasn't exactly shy of an opinion either, <laughs> by all accounts. Uh, but what's interesting, and I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but if you read John's book about that era, uh, I believe there was an element of, of it where he would end up owning a part of the Formula One team. Um, and essentially that didn't happen. You know, he, he didn't get the... Um, 
you, you know, the, the control that he felt he should have had uh, and he felt he had negotiated into, and which is why he ended up leaving the team. So um, I think that's that's what really, you know, that was a, the straw that broke the camel's back. But um, it, it, John, you know, talks about it very eloquently in that in that book. Um, I think it's called The Perfect Car. It's not actually an autobiography, but it's a very good book about his his life. So I'd encourage anyone to read it. As a fan, I was really excited to um, see what PK would do in a Barnard designed uh, Benetton, um, and so it all it all felt a little bit underwhelming. You know that it never really got going, and that those sort of strides because obviously, you know what he'd done. Um, in the latter years at Ferrari had been really innovative and had, had moved things forward and you know it, and I, I can see you know why he would have been frustrated by that that maybe he was uh, it was sold a, a pipe dream that wasn't actually a reality. We'll get into some of that background uh, that Karun briefly mentioned there and, and try to explain why Barnard believes uh, in his words he was stabbed in the back by Briatori. So when he joined Benetton, he signed a joint venture agreement that meant Barnard would own 50% of Benetton Formula Holdings and 20% of Benetton Properties, which would invest in freehold land and buildings in the UK for F1 facilities to be built. This was a five-year deal that could be reviewed after three, and Barnard was entitled to a payoff of nearly $3 million if Benetton wanted to end the deal early. But there was a clause in the agreement that said it would only come into force once Benetton signed off its 1990 budget, which it kept delaying. By early 91, Barnard feared this was Benetton's way of getting him to upgrade the team's technical capability, then sussing out if they wanted to work with him in the long term. And if they didn't, they could get rid of him more easily. Barnard was also very good on this on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast last year. It's a brilliant and quite lengthy episode with Tom Clarkson where John said they'd got what they wanted from me. When I went there, what they were doing aerodynamically was mind-blowingly behind. I put them on the map technically. Then the whole Briatori Walkinshaw thing started to formulate. It was quite obvious that I was in the way or my deal was in the way. So the bottom line is they were out to screw me. I don't know how much of that was Briatori, probably a lot of it. Andy, listening to John's interpretation there, do you think that maybe he was used by Benetton and then moved on once he'd brought them up to scratch from a technical standpoint? It certainly reads that way. You know, there's obviously two sides to every story and, you know, most people's recollections of conversations tends to uh, play towards what they wanted to hear. But if you if you try and take an objective bigger picture look, view of it, it it does seem as if he was a little bit of a pawn there um and the the speed at which um uh, they moved on with Simmons coming back and and Braun joining did look as if that was already in place so maybe that does uh, all point to that um end already being lined up Barnard recalls in his book being taken by Briatori to a meeting with Ligier where a deal was proposed that he said would make us all a lot of money. But it involved Barnard taking a piece of the Ligier team in return for technical help. Barnard wasn't comfortable with this. He said something didn't smell right about the deal, which he said would mean Ligier would effectively run Benetton bits. And he added, I was playing it pretty straight, explaining that we couldn't really run exactly the same stuff because it wasn't legal and we'd have to set up a separate design office to service Ligier. He also said on Beyond the Grid 
There were all sorts of talks of rules and regulations issues, but uh, Briatore doesn't care about stuff like that. That's easily fixed as far as he's concerned. I guess I didn't play the game well enough for Briatore to expand his business empire. Then along comes Walkinshaw, who would certainly have played that game, and off they went. Karun, Barnard wonders in that book that we've mentioned, he wonders if this Ligier deal was a test from Flavio to see if they could get on the same wavelength from a business standpoint. Do you think Barnard failed that test? I'm not sure. It's um, it, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because you, I think there were actually there's three elements here because obviously, you know, Flavio had the Tom Walkinshaw factor coming into play as well, um, and how that would have worked. You know, ultimately, when you look at it now in hindsight, you'd have to say that. You know, Walkinshaw, Ross Braun, Rory Byrne, that, that um, you know, circle of people ultimately delivered the two world championships of Benetton. So, hypothetically, could Barnard have done it? Yes. You know, he was you know, a brilliant race car designer and, and we saw. Um, but Benetton managed to achieve the success that they wanted to uh, in the end. And, you know, obviously John had to go, ended up going back to, Ferrari, um, you know, for a period of time before, again, they replaced him there. So it's funny, isn't it? How, um, you know, that, that cycle of Schumacher, Braun, Byrne sort of, uh, you know, tied into Barnard, but one, one step behind. Well, whatever happened with Ligier and Benetton, I think we can all agree that their 1995 cars looked quite similar. Although Flavio is on record as having said that that car was protested at pretty much every race that year and uh, none of the protests were upheld. So we'll leave it there. But we will end the episode with a decision Barnard made in 1990, because at the Monaco Grand Prix that year, Ayrton Senna invited him over for lunch on the Friday of the event when there was no F1 running on track. Senna asked Barnard if he should move to Benetton as well, because he assumed the team would be on the up. Now it had one of the best technical minds in F1, and Barnard said no. He told Senna, now is not the time, we're just not ready for you yet. He felt Benetton didn't have the technical capability to deliver for Senna, so he told him to leave it for a year or two. Barnard says now, I'm glad I said it. It was the professional thing to do. I could foresee his frustrations and it just didn't seem right. And talking about the limitations at Benetton, he points to things like having to go back to a manual gear shift for his 91 car two years after he'd pioneered the semi-automatic paddle shift at Ferrari as an example of the enormous frustration he felt at how Benetton was lagging behind technically at this stage. So, guys, we'll finish with a very blunt and slightly tongue-in-cheek question. Was the real sackable offence that Barnard committed while he was at Benetton turning away Ayrton Senna, Andy? I'm not necessarily sure that it was a sackable offence. Well, now maybe it is, but I think it's an enormous missed opportunity because you think that that 92 car, I'd have loved to have seen Senna driving that and what he could have done with it. I mean, I don't think he would have been able to hold a candle to uh, to the Williams, but it would have been, it was a lovely little go-kart he could have thrown around. And then Senna and the 94 Benetton, we're, we're into sort of fantasy territory here, aren't we? So I think it's it's frustrating because he's denied us this alternative universe where Schumacher probably ends up at McLaren. And, uh, you know, well, who knows where we are now? Um, but uh, it's, it was the professional thing to do was to warn Senna off because 
can you imagine how politically combustible that would have been if there was a dog of a car there and all of that stuff going on? You know, Senna wasn't exactly a calming influence in those situations. So uh, he's just denied us a great um, what-if storyline, really. I think Barnard was right. I mean, you know, Benetton weren't ready for Senna, were they? You know, if you're going to have Senna, then it suddenly ramps up the pressure that you have to have a car that can win the World Championship, you know, in that era especially. So, uh, and, and, you know, Senna was right to stay at McLaren from 91, wasn't he? He won the championship there. So I don't think he would have done that in a Benetton. Yeah, that seems fair enough. And uh, I imagine that it would have been just as politically charged with Senna there. But but who knows? Maybe Barnard would have had some more clout if he'd been the man who brought Senna in. Or maybe he'd have still been the man to take the fall if Senna couldn't win the championship at the first attempt. But we'll leave it there for the 1991 Canadian Grand Prix. Apologies to Nigel Mansell for bringing up a day he would probably rather never hear of again. But as always, there was plenty of other things going on for us to talk about. So thanks to Andy and Karun for joining us for this episode. Remember to get your questions in for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or submit a question by leaving us a five-star podcast review if you think we deserve it. Next time, we're switching focus to one of our most requested topics. It's a story of total failure in Formula One that needs very little introduction. So all I'll say for now is this. Lola 1997.